This is the audio description for Indiana Disability Justice Task Force's webinar number six, Sexual Violence Primary Prevention with People Who Are Deaf and Hard of Hearing, originally streamed the 6th of December 2019 at 1 p.m. EST. I'm Dwight Brady, and I will be narrating any visuals or on-screen text that are not covered by the speaker. Links mentioned will be included in video notes. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here at one o'clock. We're gonna wait a few minutes to get started. Um, so relax and why don't you um, check out the chat box? If you're interested in taking a look at a real time transcript of what's happening today, what you need to do is Go to your chat box, which is most likely on the right side of your screen, and in the chat box you will see a URL. Unfortunately, the platform that we are using does not integrate um, third parties applications or something like that. Essentially, what I'm saying is it's not super accessible, and so the way that we are dealing with that is we are able to have real-time transcription happening. You just need to open a different window. Sierra, if you yeah. feel like letting me have the screen for a moment, I can actually show people how my screen is set up so that they okay. can see an example. I will do that right now. Okay, Sky, I gave you the keyboard. And the mouse. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to screen share. It should be a picture of your monitor. Oh, wait a minute. Is it the monitor? It's two monitors, I think. No. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, it's a picture of your monitor. Do I need to allow you to do that? That just puts me in full screen mode. Huh. I don't um, know how to do that right now. All right, that's okay. We'll figure it out before the next time. Okay. I took back the mouse and keyboard. Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. If you just joined us, I was asking people to take a look at the chat box. In the chat box, you will find a URL that will open a real-time transcript if you would like to take advantage of our um, live captioning. Webinar number six is brought to you by the Indiana Abuse Prevention Disability Task Force, APDTF. We're going to wait a couple of more minutes to see if anybody else is going to join us this afternoon. At the bottom of the screen is a green banner with the American Sign Language hand spelling ASL. Next to that is an intro. Holly Elkins, Deaf and Hard of Hearing Outreach Coordinator, Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I wanted to let everybody know that most of us on the webinar today have varying degrees of illness, so please bear with any 
coughing or sneezes and we might actually randomly mute if we begin to have a coughing fit. So I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. On the left side of the screen are stacked video windows with two of the presenters. On top is Holly Elkins, an average sized and tall white cisgender deaf woman with short wavy salt and pepper hair, wearing brown slim rectangular glasses and a blue button up short sleeve shirt. Behind her are a couple framed certificates. Beneath her is Skye, a fat white trans person with short cropped brown hair, wearing wire rimmed glasses and a grey and black striped shirt. I think I'll wait one more minute, Skye. Holly, you think that's fair? Okay. Sky gives a thumbs up. Holly signs with her hands and nods. Okay, let's get going. I'm really excited. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Today is the sixth webinar in a series brought to you by the Indiana Abuse Prevention Disability Task Force. Our acronym is APDTF. And uh, this series began with a five webinar series back in 2018 that focuses on disability justice and violence prevention. And we are so excited to bring you five more webinars this year. We really wanna spark action and increase skills and knowledge and the best the use of inclusion best practices in our advocacy and primary prevention that is really specific to people with disabilities. So it's our hope that this series will serve as a catalyst to much needed action focused on improving systemic responses to pervasive violence that happens against people with disabilities and to shape the primary prevention strategies that drive our culture change endeavors. And this afternoon, I am so psyched that we get to hear from our colleague, Holly Elkins, about sexual violence primary prevention with people who are deaf and hard of hearing. I will introduce her and my co-host and co-APDTF leader, Skye Cantola, momentarily. But first, I just want to give you a couple of notes about the technology today. We're recording this and you will have access to that recording uh, after the webinar, probably within a week. And you will see that your mic was automatically muted when you entered today's webinar. And so um, we are going to need you to type in any questions that you have. And to do that, you'll need to use your questions pane. And again, that's commonly found on the right side of your screen. If you would, please let me know which speaker your question is addressed to and whether or not you want me to say who asked the question. You can choose to be anonymous, but you just have to let me know. Um, and then at certain points during this presentation today, we will be stopping to take some time to address those questions. So, Today, there are a few other housekeeping type things that I want to go over about our time here. So what you're looking at is a symbol that brings together four forms of communication to improve the accessibility of our work today. So this will provide you with access to a transcript now with real-time transcription, but you will also receive a transcript 
um, later when we send you the video. So Holly is our guest presenter and she's speaking ASL. To see Holly, oh, excuse me, American Sign Language, that's what ASL stands for. So to see Holly, open your camera's window, which is probably on the right side of your screen, and you will probably also see Sky if they are, um, if they open their webcams. We have an interpreter to facilitate communication for everyone. Our real-time captioning translator is Gay Cordoba, the captioning queen, thank you, Gay. She's providing a service for us called CART. Look in the chat box and follow the URL to open a window so you can see the real-time transcriptions. Finally, um, just to reiterate, you may need to open several windows today to get all of the information that we're sharing. And I recognize that if you open the webcam view, it might shrink your um, PowerPoint view. And so we've provided a um, slide deck for you. You'll notice in the um, platform that you have a little section called handouts. I would encourage you to go to that section and check out what we have for you today. And in that section is a copy of all of the slides that we will be going through today if you wanted to print them or look at them in PDF form. And so I just want to say thank you to our translator and transcriber for being part of our accessibility crew today. And um, you can ask me questions or um, share your questions in your question box. Uh, and I just want to ask that at the end of the webinar today, when you receive that evaluation, would you please let us know if there's something else that we can do to improve your access to this information? It would be super helpful. So this is me. You're hearing my voice my, right now. My name is Sierra Olivia Thomas Williams and I am our facilitator today. This is a new role for me, web facilitation. It's really kind of cool though. Um, I use she and her pronouns and I've been in the field of violence prevention and intervention for quite a while since the end of the 1990s. And I have had the opportunity to work in primary prevention since 2005. Um, five years ago, I joined the prevention team at Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I'm the prevention specialist here, and I get to work with a variety of people with disabilities to prevent sexual violence in our state. Professional Cred. ICADV Prevention Specialist, 2015 to present. Disability Justice Advocate, 2018 to present. Victims Advocate, 1998 to 2015. Primary Prevention and Victims Advocacy, 2005 to 2015. And um, I am a person with a disability. And even though I am a person with a disability, I experience a great deal of privilege because my disability is mostly invisible. So I don't suffer from stigma like some of my friends and colleagues whose disabilities are visible. Um, but another part of me that is mostly invisible but like for very different reasons is my indigeneity. I belong to the Sierra Miwoks and my name is geography. My name is the geography of the regions, what is now known as California. If you know the Sierra uh, area, that's, that's, that's where my people roamed until we 
we're told we couldn't. And, um, I'm a mom of two fur babies and two twin human forces of nature. I'm the earth and they're my sun and moon and I love them so much. Also, a fan of live music, especially Pearl Jam, cultivating my flower garden and reading. On the right are four photos. Sierra laughing and standing in a zigzag dress and green cardigan. A selfie of Sierra and her twins trying to squeeze into the photo. A wooden National Park entrance is behind them. Sierra's white dog looking back at us over their shoulder. Sierra's grey and white cat sleeping with their cheek nuzzled into a book. I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic and the keyboard to Sky, who will introduce themselves themselves, and talk a bit more about my work. Sky, give me a second. Sky nods. Okay. I've passed the mic. Oh, okay. Um, I told it to go forward? Okay, cool. Um, hi, I'm Sky. I use she and they pronouns. I am the program coordinator at the Multicultural Efforts to End Sexual Assault. I have many hats, um, so I also uh, volunteer as the communications director for a national nonprofit called Pedagogy and Theater at the Oppressed. Um, I have been doing community organizing work and violence prevention since about 2008, and um, I've been with Mesa for uh, almost seven years now. Um, I'm also queer, trans, intersex, and have multiple disabilities, which is why, in part why I am so excited to have the privilege to work with Sierra on organizing these webinars and other educational opportunities for folks. Um, in my free time, I love to do artwork and connect that to violence prevention and trauma healing work. So there's a few different images of different kinds of artwork that I was excited to share with all with all of you today. Um, in my free time, I also do gay things, whatever that means. <laughs> I do trauma healing work and I love to take care of the earth. Sky Ashton Cantler. On the left is a black and white ink drawing of many overlapping flowers and intricate patterns, swirls, zigzags. In the top left of the drawing are the words, I am enough. In the middle is a photorealistic painting of an extreme close-up of a red rose with glistening dewdrops between the petals. On the right is a mostly black and white photo of a small patio table with a potted plant beneath and sitting on top. On the table are three colorful ceramic birds, one yellow, one red, and one blue and white. And I would just briefly mention that if you can see, I am surrounded by adorable but very large sleeping dogs because I have also not been feeling well, so I'm working from home. I hope that none of my dogs have strong opinions about the discussion today, but if they do, I will do my best to mute so that you do not have to hear the entire pack having opinions about webinar content. Um, uh, before Holly gets started, uh, I just wanted to take a moment to let people know more broadly what our task force is working on. Um, we are a statewide effort, mostly of incredible volunteers, um, people with disabilities, self-advocates, caregivers, and service providers from around the state. And we have been working in several, several different projects. So these webinars that we're doing again this year are just one of the projects. If you are interested, you can find all of the things that we're working on for free on our um, online Patreon account. So if you just go to www.patreon.com backslash IN for Indiana, Disability Justice, that's where we're at. 
Um, we are hoping next year that we will move to a more traditional website. We just wanted to use a platform to get things um, published quickly this year. So that's why we're using Patreon. But all of the content is completely free. Um, we are also experimenting with new evaluation strategies. We are doing the webinars that you are at right now. Um, we're also designing and have implemented two pilot data collection projects. One is for understanding from people with disabilities, disabilities in Indiana um, what their experiences are with sexual wellness and harm and independence. And the other is an assessment for organizations who work with people with disabilities to see where are the areas that they're excelling and where can they use more support in contributing to violence prevention work. Um, and then we also have lots of different kinds of research and infographics and other publications that we have already posted onto Patreon or we are working on developing and giving to you for free. Collaborators, self-advocates and other people with disabilities, community members, disability advocacy and service agencies, state domestic violence and sexual violence coalitions, government agencies, researchers, organizing lands, mutual aid networking, pedagogy of the oppressed, transformative accountability. So that's where we're at. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and uh, pass it on to Holly. Um. Nope, that's me. Uh, cool. Okay, I, um, <laughs> excuse me, while I figure out where I am at. Okay, here we go. Yes, absolutely. So this is, thank you, Sky. This is the plan for today. Our agenda is going to be bookended by housekeeping and sort of announcement things. And Holly is going to take approximately 20 minutes to cover creating protective environments, which is a strategy for primary prevention in the CDC's Stop SV technical package. We're gonna talk about the crisis shelter system in Indiana, and we are going to be talking about training ASL interpreters. And again, ASL stands for American Sign Language. So at, um, I wanna actually tell you about my colleague. I am so excited. I get to work with Holly on a day-to-day -day basis. Holly has been um, doing this work at ICADV, that's the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, since 2015. And uh, before that had a variety of different outreach um, professional experiences. Holly is a deaf woman and uses she, her pronouns. On the left is a black and white portrait of Holly smiling at us over her shoulder. She wears a black collared shirt. She is a graduate of Gallaudet University. Professional card, deaf and hard of hearing coordinator, 2015 to present. Empowerment coordinator, case management services, 2014 to 2015. Regional outreach manager, project endeavor, 2010 to 2012 and is a fan of Star Wars. Um, she saw the first Star Wars movie at a drive-in theater in 1980, and her favorite book is A Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. And I couldn't be happier to share with you the phenomenal work that Holly is doing. And so I am just going to go ahead and 
um, pass the mic and the keyboard to you right now, Holly. And I've done that. Holly begins to sign, gesticulating with her arms and emoting with her face. Thank you for that nice, beautiful introduction, Sierra. Um, hi, everyone. How's everybody doing? Hopefully everybody's having a good day so far. And I uh, hope you're enjoying my sexy male voice that you're hearing today. <laughs> so <laughs> let's all enjoy that. She laughs. Um, so this webinar is focusing primarily on the deaf and hard of hearing um, initiatives that we are taking on here at ICADV. Uh, so this afternoon's webinar is going to focus on three main areas. We have three main areas of focus, <clears throat> and it's all part of the work that I do. Um, first of all, I want to kind of establish the ICAD, the ICADV philosophy. We do prevention work, and um, that really guides us toward, you know, kind of like the North Star, really. Um, it's guiding us and drives our work as, a, as an organization. Um, so we here at ICADV um, are looking for opportunities to increase safety and stability and nurturance. And uh, th that's all of what we do. Um, and that's primarily what we're doing here in Indiana. Um, so my work here is I'm responsible for, as the deaf and hard of hearing coordinator, which means my role here is to establish programming and services that um, to, to, to address any of the needs uh, and gaps that are serving our deaf and hard of hearing uh, community, because there are some, some serious gaps in services. Um, I'm very thankful to ICADV for creating this position so that those services can be addressed and the needs for the deaf and hard of hearing services <laughs> can be met. My role also is to provide technical assistance to our member programs throughout the state of Indiana. And member programs could be um, domestic violence shelters, it could be programs, non-residential programs, um, legal offices, and that, that sort of thing. So that just gives you a broader view, kind of a, a general idea of what I do here. So with that in mind, my, my primary focus in my work, I mean, I, I, I have several projects that I'm working on, I'm very excited about, but there are three areas that I really want to focus on. Um, and that kind of speaks to our prevention work here at ICADV. The, the first aspect is uh, safe schools. So I've been collaborating <clears throat> with the Indiana School for the Deaf, or ISD, and I'll kind of explain what that looks like and how that partnership kind of started and how it's evolved. Um, so that is kind of more of the nurturing aspect. The second area that uh, I want to focus on today is working with programs and shelters and making them accessible to deaf people, deaf and hard of hearing uh, survivors. And we will talk about our um, accessibility initiative and how we've kind of worked with programs, how that's come about. And I'll detail that process. Um, and also making sure that the deaf and hard of hearing people are in a safe, stable environment. 
and that they are out of harm's way. So what that looks like for them. And then the third aspect, third but not least, is um, working with uh, trauma-informed interpreting. And I want to kind of specify American Sign Language Interpreting or ASL Interpreting, interpreting for the deaf and hard of hearing population. There are, there's also spoken language interpreting as well, but the purpose of this uh, webinar is to more focus on the ASL type interpreting for our deaf and hard of hearing um, survivors. And there's been a training process that we've gone through to help um, interpreters who are working with our survivors so that they're trauma-informed and they have different tools in their toolbox that they can refer to when they're in that, that realm of interpreting and to make sure that it's providing a safe place uh, for the person who's experienced trauma. So those are the three areas that we're going to look at today. As we go throughout this uh, webinar this afternoon, there will be several polls that will be uh, submitted to you guys so you guys can uh, take part and it's an opportunity for all of us to kind of learn from each other. At the uh, end of each of those three sections, you will also have opportunities to ask questions. Um, my colleague, um, Sky and Sierra, will um, be able to participate at those points as well. So that kind of, kind of gives you an idea of what our afternoon is going to look like. So we'll go ahead and do our first poll. We'll start out with that. Um, and we'll just get started this way. Holly, can you please ask the participants to use the real-time transcript? We have quite a few people who are deaf and need the real-time transcript. The URL is in the chat. Could you sign that, please? Oh, would you turn your webcam on and sign that? Because um, the people who are deaf need to know and haven't seen the URL. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, the URL in the chat box. So those of you um, who are seeing me, um, if you would rather also have access to real-time captioning, um, go to the chat box. And in the chat box, you'll see a URL link there in the chat box. So if you click on that URL. You know what, the, Holly, your webcam's not on. So that's this person can't. That's why she doesn't know that we're talking. Holly is still on the left side of the screen as she has been. OK. Um, so my webcam's not on. So nobody can see me? No. Um, can you turn it back on? Sorry, Sierra, I can see Holly, so... Oh, you I'm can? Sure, I'm sorry, okay. I'm not sure, are other people having a difficult time seeing Holly? Oh, okay, a bunch of people are now saying, I can see Holly, I apologize. I'm, I'm trying to troubleshoot um, for a couple of people um, who need a caption. Um, hopefully, hopefully, will you please pop back into the question box and let me know if you have been hooked up <laughs> with the real-time transcript. 
Okay. I'll, I'll continue to try that. We are ready for our, our poll. Is that right, Holly? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as we get through these technical difficulties, yeah, um, let's go ahead and do okay. the, I the poll. Yeah, I'm ready to do the poll when you are. Okie dokie. We're going to go ahead and launch the first poll. A picture of a red box stuffed with ballots labeled poll. Holly's hand covers her webcam so we only see fingers. Holly, will you be talking us through this? Okay, so poll number one says, in your lifetime, have you ever had any encounters with a person who is deaf or hard of hearing? You have two options. You can select yes or no. And it looks like at least half of our participants have voted. Um, we are, wow, we have a lot of participation here. Okay. Holly removes her hand and she's visible again. I am going to go ahead and close the poll and share those results with you. So you'll see that most of our attendees, 86% of the people who participate, yes, have had encounters with folks. Okay, great. That's a wow. That's a that's a big number. Um, yeah, so we have a very experienced group that have actually have had um, access to a deaf or hard of hearing person. So the second poll question then. Okay, I will share that now. What do you think? Your poll is visible and poll number two says in your present position do you have any direct experience working with people who are deaf or hard of hearing you have two options you can select yes or no right now we have about 45 percent participation and we are very close to 50 50. i'll give us a few more seconds to participate in poll number two Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and close the poll. We have almost all of our participants um, did go ahead and answer that. And you can see that um, it's pretty divided, but more people who are with us today have not had an opportunity to directly work with people. Okay, and that's really helpful for me to get an idea of your level of experience and exposure to deaf and hard of hearing people if you've had contact um, in a professional level with them. So let's go back and, and I'll come back to the reason why I'm asking that and it'll become evident as we go through this session. Um, okay, Holly, I'm giving you back control. Okay, okay, great. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm gung-ho here, okay. Um, so everyone, could everybody can see me okay now? Everybody can see me and they can access the captioning if you need to. I just want to check in before we get any further to make sure everybody has the ability to participate in that access. <clears throat> Nurture. Safe school environment. It looks good. I can see you. I can hear you. Can you advance the slide if you need to? A black and white close-up of newborn baby feet resting in adult open palms. I just want to make sure that everybody had, um, yeah, everybody had access to the webcam, whether it's captioning or seeing me on uh, webcam. 
Oh, thank you. Yes, I did hear from um, the person who I was most concerned with including, and I believe that that person figured it out, and I learned something in the process. Woot woot, thank you, person, for helping me. Great, great. Thank you for your patience, and thank you for working together. I do appreciate um, everybody having access. So let's start with my our, our collaboration with the Indiana School for the Deaf. Um, our primary focus has been on creating a safe school environment for everyone, um, and not just the students, but for everyone on campus. And how this, this project kind of got started. Um, I'm pushing the arrow and it's not advancing the slide. A young black boy in a black and gold sports jersey has his right palm upright in his left hand. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so um, yeah, I'll give you a second just to look at the, uh, the numbers there on the slide. Deaf individuals are 150% more likely to be victims of assault, abuse, and bullying in their lifetime. Hashtag who will answer. So yeah, that's a high percentage. That's a high number. Um, for that particular population. So at the Indiana School for the Deaf, I'm working with them, collaborating with them, because they had reached out to ICADV and approached us on the fact that they're facing challenges navigating um, students, student violence, um, and, and student bullying, and all those sorts of different uh, violent acts. So, and violent behaviors. So the school wanted support. They wanted um, guidance on how to address that, how to address that issue at their school. And ISD is not unique because, I mean, a lot of schools throughout America experience bullying. It's not, it's not isolated to the Indiana School for the Deaf or Deaf schools in general. Um, so, I sat down with them to kind of clarify and talk to them about what it is they had in mind, what their goals were, what they wanted to see from us as um, from the ICADV prevention team. And um, so as a, as a result of that collaboration, I've been working on the prevention team. So we've been looking at, well, first of all, we've been looking at is we, we examine in depth what it is their, the risk factors were. That's the first thing we have to do, um, is to look at what are the risk factors and make sure, you know, and that will will kind of tell us, inform us how successful we can be. What are the risk factors that are causing violence to happen? Start of a story. Concern, direction, support, goal. And then after that, we did a project um, and the steps involved with that project. Uh, let's see. It takes a minute for the slide to advance. It's a new computer. It takes a lot of time. What our team did was we got together and planned a planned with the school how best to address their needs 
and how best to strategize and provide resources to improve their environment. The very first thing that we determined was creating a policy. Policies and procedures. Review. Evaluate. Rewrite. And that may make you think, well, how does a policy relate to prevention? And I want to go back and kind of review those, those three um, pre uh, prevention strategies um, on the continuum. The, the first uh, primary, uh, there's primary, there's secondary, and then the, the final, the tertiary part of the spectrum. So the primary means uh, preventing something before it happens. Secondary means while it's happening in the moment where somebody is experiencing violence, whether it's sexual violence, domestic violence, um, either one. So they're experiencing it in the moment. And then tertiary means after the violence has happened. Um, that may involve sending somebody to a batter's in for, uh, intervention program. Uh, could be sending the survivor to counseling to get that, that ongoing after support. Okay, so now regarding the Indiana School for the Deaf, we were focusing on primary prevention. So preventing further violence from happening, uh, which would also include bullying. So we looked at, we, we unpacked their, their policy handbook and we looked at everything that they had in place already. There are pictures of a student family handbook 2018 to 2019 and education handbook 2016 to 2017. A person in denim capris sits barefoot on two tall stacks of books, an open book in their lap. Um, the, the policies that they had informed the process on how they address student issues as they arise. So there are policies regarding that and, and how they address the problem, whether it's discipline. And we, we want to avoid the word discipline um, too much because we don't want a punitive system, but how, how those, uh, those incidences are addressed. So what our team did was it took about, um, we started in about 2015. So the first, um, the first half year we were focusing on the on policies and revising them, revamping them, um, and creating a new system for them. So that was one element. The second element Holly, if you want to just tell me to advance the slides, I'll do it for you. There's a delay for you, so I can advance it. That, that might be the best way because okay. what I'm doing isn't very effective. Okay, no problem. Just go ahead and tell me and I'll do that. And um, I'm just give me one second because I'm going to take that off of you. Okay, and so I'm going to advance the slide for us. Go ahead, Holly. Okay, yeah, so yeah, it's my keyboard isn't working or for whatever reason. Anyway, um, so so we looked at the policies. We also 
took a look and did an analysis of their school climate, their, their entire school environment to, to figure out what was happening and what was going on. There's an organization called Advance Ed that, takes, that had taken a look at their environment before and they had some recommendations. There is a picture of the Advance ED accreditation report on the Indiana School for the Deaf. We also, um, the school administration team, uh, dispersed a survey to their students electronically. And it's called the Olvice Bullying Questionnaire. And so the students then responded, they reported how often they were bullied um, you know, throughout the day or in, and things like that. Uh, whether it was gender-based, um, you can, you can uh, kind of split it out between uh, gender, between grade level and things like that. A result page of the survey with color-coded tables. Um, so the ISD students, there are, there are 350 students at ISD from K through 12. Um, so they, they did the survey, they did, and then the administration team and teachers did a self-assessment as well to look at their processes, how they communicate with parents and the community. So they took all of those things into consideration. The teachers reported, um, like all the teacher reported incident reports and things like that. So we took a review, we did a review. Um, also with the CEASD, did a site visit the year before, and they're a conference for um, educational administrators. It's, it's superintendents of, of deaf schools um, from other states. That's what the CEASD is. Um, and they're kind of a, they're an accreditation, it's an accreditation report that they did. And that helped us as a team get a sense or a snapshot of what ISD was like at that time in 2015, uh, the 2015-2016 school year. So we reviewed all of that, and then those reports helped us get a better sense of what was needed, what the challenges were, what tools and supports that they needed, what resources they needed to enable them to reduce the amount of risk factors that they had. Let's go ahead and advance the slide. I'll just wave so that way you'll know. Um, another area that we felt like was very significant um, in this partnership was we looked at the Deaf Schools Incident Report System. Disciplinary tiers, evaluating categories, revamping process, unique considerations, a picture of a freshly sharpened pencil, the manual sharpener and shavings sitting on an open blank notebook. And their, their processes and their layers of, um, of discipline. And I'm gonna, again, I don't wanna call it, I don't wanna sign it discipline because it's the same sign as punishment, but I will fingerspell discipline. So their incident reports at ISD were electronic based. So they had an electronically based system and their categories that they had were um, like um, insubordination um, was one of their categories, uh, 
you know, refusing to listen, and they had different levels of, of severity. So while we were looking at their incident report system, some of the things that we discovered in their software, they had, um, there was a, if I, looking back on it, I would say there were probably 20, if I remember correctly, um, 20 different categories. <clears throat> and there were some categories that were very vague and they weren't very clearly defined. <laughs> She stifles a cough while holding up a finger. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to break anybody's eardrum, so I'm going to mute myself whenever I start to cough. So, so the, uh, some of the categories were very vague. They were very confusing, not well-defined. So it took several months to really hone in on those categories of incident reports. And some of, there were some redundancy. Um, so we cleaned all that up and it, we made sure that they aligned um, with the incident report categories in the policy. If it wasn't in the policy, um, then they shouldn't have been in the reporting system because they were penalizing students or disciplining students for things that weren't clearly defined in the policy. So it seemed kind of contradictive. So as a team, we looked at all those things and um, we made sure that they all aligned. We also uh, looked at some unique considerations where there were some things like, for example, um, there's the, the typical student population, but then there's a smaller group of students with um, special needs or students with multiple disabilities, uh, mental health challenges, behavioral challenges. Um, when you included those into the general population, it really kind of skewed the numbers. And I don't want to use the term skewed, but it did have an effect on the general numbers um, because those were some of those kids who had those cognitive issues that, that needed to be separated out of the general population. Um, those numbers needed to be separated out. And that really helped a lot too to kind of define and help clarify, um, you know, where some of the issues and risks were. So this whole process was really, a, it was a multidisciplinary team effort. And we here at ICADB were able to uh, pull in Indiana University Institute on Disabilities and Community, um, which is in IU Bloomington. And they have expertise in educational systems. So we were able to pull them in to this process. And we also were able to um, pull in Aspire, which is a mental health organization here in Indiana. And they have a deaf services unit within their organization and it's located here in Indianapolis. And so we, they were, we were able to bring them to the table as well. So we had a multidisciplinary team. Next, what we were able to do next after looking at their policies and procedures, we were also able to get student involvement and have them have a say, have a voice in the process. And that was very valuable 
um, because the risk factors impact them directly. So we wanted to hear their experiences, their observations, uh, get their input. Go ahead. Next slide. Yeah. Um, so then we were able to then create and develop focus groups. Student focus groups. Methods. Grade levels. Data collection. There are three pictures along the left. A young black girl outdoors with long braids tied back and her arms outstretched. Several colorful aprons hanging from a shelf of art supplies. Three young students hanging out in front of a stone staircase. Two white girls talking to a light-skinned black boy. And our method for doing that, if you recall, um, it's a K through 12 school. So there are different grade levels, different age levels, different abilities to communicate. Um, you know, a, a child in first grade does not communicate the same way, can't express themselves like a senior in high school. So we had to modify and adapt the, to their communication needs. Um, with elementary school, we use a lot of pictures, you know, like with um, different emotive faces, happy, safe, not safe. We had sad faces for that. So we helped with the elementary kids kind of communicate their, their needs. Um, we took a campus map and we asked students where they felt safe or they felt not safe. Um, and if there were any concerns that they wanted to let us know. And after collecting all of that data, um, we collected it several ways. Um, we were able to use video where we would pull in um, an Aspire, Aspire did the interviews. Um, so they were, a, so it wasn't ICADV, it wasn't ISD. We wanted to get an external neutral person in there so that the students would feel safe and free to express themselves, um, you know, in a more safe, private, confidential way. So the, we had a group of 70 students um, from elementary school, middle school, and high school. So we had a broad range of students that we were able to choose from. And there was no identifying information. It was just student ID numbers. Um, so we were able to videotape those, those interviews and we were able to review those, um, that data. We use that same format. We use that same form for, for all levels. So we were able to collect some data that way. And it was a very comprehensive um, process. We were able to analyze and evaluate the, the school and how to improve the school as a whole. So, um, from 2015 to 2018, we were able to revamp their policies. We were able to talk to administrators. Um, we were able to have these student focus groups. And so we were able to gather all of this data. Go ahead and advance the slide. A variety of colored pencils are stacked along the left side. And then the areas we looked at were classroom management because what we learned um, as we reviewed all the incident reports is that some of the incident reports were clearly related to classroom management issues. Um, and I can share one example um, where there was an incident report that was filed by a teacher saying that the student flipped a pencil across the room. And so there was an incident report filed for that. 
Um, and so, and, and there were several things that we were able to recognize too. There are other factors um, that were related to that. It, there was aggression or violence in the classroom. So we felt like it was important to look at classroom management um, and how to improve that. So we, we discussed that um, as, a, as a group. And Indiana University was also um, there to give us resources on classroom management and techniques and strategies and approaches. So they provided some training opportunities as well for the staff at, at the deaf school. Throughout that process, um, ISD was able to create internally a five-step process for teachers to, to follow. Um, so there are you know, different steps that they go through, a five-step approach before they file an incident report. So that helps kind of address some of the classroom management issues. And that greatly reduced the number of incident reports that were coming from the classrooms. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> yeah. Next. Four black men in colorful swim trunks dive simultaneously into a bright blue swimming pool. So with those trainings for ISD staff, we were able to provide training in positive behavioral um, strategies. PBIS. Staff training. Midwest PBIS Network. Indiana University Institute on Disability and Community. Or PBS. So ISD uh, sent, I think they sent 10 staff, if I, if I remember correctly, 10 staff um, uh, to a training that was um, offered through uh, Indiana University. Um, and it was a three-day intensive training. So those 10 staff who went through the training were able to bring that information back to ISD and then train the rest of the staff and start to implement changes. So that um, education, that so the, in the educational arena, we were able to make great improvements and make significant improvements. So the quarterly reports from ISD now, there was a big reduction in the number of um, incident reports by like 50% because they were able to establish strategies, approaches, techniques to improve classroom management. So there were amazing positive results from that. Um, then from there, we were able to work, at, work with other areas at ISD. So next slide. On the left are two pictures, a white father and son smiling at each other. And the second picture shows a muscular black man raising his child in the air above him. So our next step then was to work with um, ISD to create a positive, to create positive, healthy relationships and interactions. Curriculum, healthy relationships, positive interactions, sexuality. As well as now, and this starting this fall, we started working with their um, athletics department because there are times when athletics can be overly competitive and can be very aggressive, and that can impact students, parents, fans, etc. So we were able to incorporate the athletics department um, to create a, a wholly safe environment. Um, On the right is an action plan. One, create safe spaces. Two, affect culture change. Three, coaching philosophy. Four, coach training. 
Five, expand opportunities. From that, ISD then was able to communicate to the community um, that respectful relationships and behaviors is the expectation, is the expected choice, is, is the norm that we expect. And so they were able to communicate that to the community at large. So we're starting to see that filter out throughout the school community. And it takes a while to, for, for change to take effect, but, um, but it's been working. And I think that these strategies are, are really turning out to be positive for the school. So next then, um, ready for the next poll. Another poll slide. So the, yeah, the, the poll to test your knowledge. So let's go with the next poll question. Okay, everybody, we have poll number three. Poll number three question says, how does one describe a deaf person? And you have three options. A person who was born deaf, a person <laughs> who's deaf and uses American Sign Language, ASL, or, excuse me, a person with hearing loss of at least 80 decibels. I will leave this poll open for a few more seconds. I'm going to go ahead and apologize to Holly. I believe that I accidentally cut off that second sentence there, but I think people can pick up what we are putting down. We have about half of our folks have participated. So uh, I call that good. I'm gonna go ahead and close this and share the results. Holly, would you talk about that? Sure. Um, poll results. So it looks like uh, most people pick that third option with the hearing loss of at least 80 decibels. 6% voted a person who was born deaf. 12% voted a person who is deaf and uses ASL, and 82% voted a person with hearing loss of at least 80 dB. And some people probably, can everybody see me on the camera during the poll? I just want to make sure, because I can't see myself. I just want to make sure that everybody can see me. <laughs> okay, so that third option, the 80 decibel hearing loss, um, is considered a deaf person. So. I, I'm looking at the term deaf, and you might have noticed that the word deaf has a capital letter D, is capitalized. In the deaf community, um, cultural it's a cultural linguistic minority group, and so they use the term, they use American Sign Language as their chosen language. Um, huh. There are deaf people out there who don't use or don't choose to use American Sign Language. So when you look at the capital letter D deaf, we're talking about the cultural, when you see the capital D deaf, it means um, cultural linguistic group that use American Sign Language as their language of communication. So, um, I can open it up for questions at this point if anybody has any questions. A slide of colorful speech bubbles with question marks. Holly, I'm gonna give people a few seconds um, to go ahead and submit speaker questions. And 
I think this is a good time for me to remind people that there is a real-time transcript. The URL is in the chat box. And if you have any questions for Holly about any of the things that she's shared, go ahead and put them in the question box now and I will say them out loud. I think we can go full steam ahead, and if anybody has any questions, we'll catch it on the next one. What do you think? Poll number four, coming at ya. Okay, poll number four. How many people in America have hearing loss? You have the options of 500,000, you have the option of 1.5 million, 13 million or 48 million. Right now we have about one third of the participants giving us answers on the poll. Thank you, thank you. It's so awesome. We appreciate your input. Keep going, keep going, you can do it. Yes, okay. We have nearly reached 50%, so I'm gonna go ahead and share the poll results with you, Holly. Will you debrief those for us? Okay, so I'll go ahead and debrief those for us. It looks like 25% of respondents answered 1.5 million. 63% of the people who voted said that there are 13 million people who have hearing loss in America, and 13% said 48 million. Holly, I'm going to go ahead and um, un I'm going to hide the poll. Do you have anything to add? Holly signs in response. Right now, I am not hearing our interpreter. There we go. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yes. Sorry about that. Yeah, again, again. <laughs> Take two. Um, yes, accessibility just takes time. That's right. So the actual answer is 48 million people in America have a hearing loss. Um, when we look at hearing loss, that's a very broad term. Um, that it could, could include senior citizens who have lost their hearing at, at a later age, people who have lost their hearing because of war. Um, so 48 million. So some of you are really close. So good guesses all around. Um, the grey brick house with red doors and windows has a brain icon painted on the door, stable written on one window, and accessible programs written on the other. The second part of my presentation is about accessibility and um, our accessibility. The Indiana School for the Deaf, we talked about risk factors and prevention, and um, shelters are a place where we look for stability, and when people come into a program, how do we make sure that those programs are places where people can come in and feel stable? Um, and I can explain a little bit more about that as it relates to our population. Um, Sierra, I'm gonna need to step out for just a moment. Um, okay, no so, problem. Yeah, go ahead and if you don't mind, you, I don't, 
I don't mind. Second. Yeah, go for it. Um, I think, oh, go ahead, Sky. Did you want to? Sky appears as Holly places a sticker over the webcam. Oh, no. Um, I guess I was just going to briefly add, so I think um, one thing that is important in working with deaf and hearted hearing communities is to uh, pay attention to some of the specifics and the way that Holly is toggling between different kinds of language. There is often in many um, either the way Holly described linguistic minority communities or in among people with disabilities, there's often um, a lot of different forms of the same language that have different impacts on the communities. So for example, um, it might be medical language to talk about deaf and hard of hearing folks as people who have hearing loss, but very frequently it is also um, less ideal or even considered offensive to refer to deaf and hard of hearing folks simply as people who have hearing loss because people in these communities often do not see the way that they move through the world as a loss or through a deficit model. Um, and that's why we are primarily referring to deaf and hard of hearing folks as people who are deaf or hard of hearing and not people who have hearing loss. Um, and so just try to make sure that most of the time it's most appropriate to use community affirming language rather than necessarily medical language. I just wanted to uh, have, since, since Holly's taking a break anyway, uh, I just thought it was a good thing to mention because we kind of switched between so many different um, ways of referring to this community and sometimes certain um, language is better in different situations. So I just wanted to make sure that we highlighted that. Were you going to say something else, Sierra? Sky looks side to side and then furrows their brow. Sierra? Could, could you not hear me? I think I may have accidentally no, muted myself. I think you were muted, so go ahead again. <laughs> okay. Um, apologies. I, I thank you, Sky, so much for adding that those insights to this conversation. And I was just going to say that what I've noticed about our work is that the more, so the accessibility systems sometimes don't work together. Um, so what I'm saying is, for example, we in this, the agency where I work, our software for webinars doesn't have the option to provide real-time transcripts. And so that's a barrier that we have as an agency. And so in order to overcome that barrier, we're working with uh, voice to print to provide the real-time captioning, but it has caused, and not but, it has caused a lot of problems because um, people, because it's not happening right in the webinar window. And so we are learning all of this on the fly with all of you at the same time. We're learning how to navigate these different forms of communication accessibility. And I just am so appreciative that you're hanging in there with us as we figure this out. And that's just what I wanted to say is the more accessible our work becomes, the more complicated it becomes. Yeah, and I feel like um, we're continuing in the same vein as last year where uh, we had lots of conversations on, on some of these webinars, especially with Jody, that often uh, striving to be as accessible as possible uh, leads to lots of awkward moments. <laughs> and um, yes. I 
hope and I feel like we pretty deliberately are we're doing our best to be as prepared and accessible in every way as possible and also trying to not hide the fact that sometimes um, being accessible and doing accessible organizing and education can be clumsy and a learning process for all of us and um, we are definitely trying to always do better. Um, and for example, like last year at the webinars that we held, we did not have cart services, which is terrible because we're doing webinars on disability justice. So of course we should have real-time captioning and cart services. Holly removes the sticker and reappears nodding and smiling. Um, so, you know, we're continually trying to do better ourselves and we appreciate learning with all of you. And Holly is Yes, back. Holly's back. Fabulous. Go for it. Yeah, so while the cat was away, the mice will play, right? <laughs> she clasps her hands. Okay. Um, so, uh, back to where we were. Um, focusing on working with shelters and making sure that they're accessible. Um, and why accessibility is so important for stability. And I'll talk more about that here in just a minute and what that looks like. Oh, I'm sorry. Ten smiling feminine presenting folks of varied races and body shapes stand shoulder to shoulder on a rocky hilltop against a forest. They wear stylish casual clothes. Um, so we talked about our accessibility initiative um, <clears throat> and, that, uh, and it's an intensive process on how we can address special particular unique needs for the deaf and hard I'm sorry, I just wanted to let Andy know that you are not audible anymore. Um, I'm showing that I'm unmuted. Yes, we can hear you now. Um, do you mind just starting back at the beginning of that sentence you just had? Okay, sure, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so, okay, just want to make sure we're all clear. Um, so, yeah, I did want to talk about um, ICADV's uh, accessibility initiative and the process that was, it's a very comprehensive process. Um, and it was over about a six month period of time. And so we looked at and uh, worked with our partner programs that we have throughout the state, um, shelters, non-residential programs, uh, other service providers, and looked at how to best address specific unique needs that uh, deaf and hard of hearing survivors have as they come in and access those, access those programs. And how can we provide the supports that they need so that they feel like they're in a stable environment after they leave a violent situation? <clears throat> regardless, you know, regardless if it was sexual violence or domestic violence, um, either or, we wanna make sure that they felt they were in a stable environment. And so I can talk about some uh, specifics and what it is that our our initiative um, looked like, what our approach was, and what our strategies were. Next slide. A light-skinned hand with black nail polish places nine post-it notes on a wall in a grid. So we created, established, and created an action plan to support those programs, and with with the goal of making sure that those programs were accessible. Um, from point of contact till the point that they left the program. 
And so we reviewed um, all the different programs and what it is that they faced as challenges, what gaps there may have been, what was lacking. And so we looked at all of that. We also built in training sessions or uh, through different phases. And so we were able to review information at that time, get a feel from all of the programs and what challenges they were facing, and then provide training to those programs. So we went through these different phases um, for, for all of our programs. And what those, you know, what all those phases included, I'll be able to explain more. Uh, next slide. A crowd of folks of different races dance on a wooden deck on a river, the sunlight reflecting on the water's surface. So first was pre-planning. And by that, we identified first, um, the first cohort, we chose five select programs um, throughout the state of Indiana as, as an initial cohort. And we provided some, some pre-reading on organizational capacity um, there was some white papers on how to work with deaf and hard of hearing survivors that was provided to them. And, and by the way, those, um, those, those white papers will be available to all of you after this recording is done. We'll include those as part of our um, handouts for this webinar. We also uh, convened um, twice. We had leadership from those programs get together and we talked about uh, different issues, different topics. And one of the things that we were able to provide was an assessment, a self-assessment. And we used a deaf and hard of hearing tool that we developed here as kind of a self-survey where the programs would look at their own structure, like uh, the physical structure of their buildings, were, were there visual alarms available? If there were alarm clocks that were provided, were they visual or were they, you know, were they able to vibrate? Was there telephone access for deaf people? So it was like a two page checklist um, that they were able to self-assess and turn that in. So that was part of phase one. Phase two, then we, next slide. A close-up of a book of tables with color coding and measurements. The content is unclear, but dozens of pages have color gradients. For phase two, um, we were able to look at the capacity of the uh, different program staff. Um, we were able to get that data that they were able to self-provide and analyze that. We also established um, on-site visits for those five programs. And we did a thorough on-site visit. Like for example, I would um, do a cold call. I would show up to these programs as a new person who just left the situation and I kind of evaluated how they would interact with me. Um, I didn't address who I was. I had, uh, I, I used a fake name and I, I went through each step of the process to see if they would understand um, if they would call an interpreting agency or what their process would be. Their crisis center staff to see what how they would respond um, and so we were able to identify some gaps in the in the systems and we were able to identify some strengths as well so i was able to go through their entire programs um, their intake process to see how much information they were able to share with me um, if there was a deaf person 
who may have an, an additional challenge. Maybe they don't have strong English skills. Maybe they're uh, immig immigrants from another country, which would create a different type of uh, challenge for the printed material that was provided. So as we went through all of these, uh, I, I visited each of the five programs and I was able to stay um, about three days in each program, not, not necessarily consecutive days, but um, three days in each program so I could get um, a full continuum of services from point of contact to exiting the program. Next slide. A rectangular tunnel made of rainbow colored frames. <coughs> So throughout that process, there were a few things that, uh, considerations that we had to take into account to make sure that survivors were getting what they needed. Um, the organizational structure, uh, for example, was there was, was a program residential or non-residential, or was it both? Um, and who they served, what type of population did they serve? We looked at the organization's capacity, meaning staffing. The um, equipment, we looked at, uh, you know, what type of equipment they had available, computers that they had accessible, um, and how accessible the environment was, how the, the environment operated. We also looked at um, financial resources and allocations because, um, a lot of these organizations get funding from different places. So if they know where to find funding for particular services and things like that, and where to look for funds, uh, whether they were federal, state, private donations, because those, those monies can pay for alarm clocks to bring in interpreters. Um, you can, budget, you can line item those particular budgets. So we looked at all of those different things um, with all the different organizations that I visited. And we took all those different things into consideration. Next slide. A dozen mostly brown and black folks in a circle reach in and put their hands together. They wear matching blue wristbands. So at the end of all of those site visits, I was able to write a summary of findings and talked about the things that, that worked well, uh, things they did well, uh, some significant findings or some gaps that I was able to identify, whether they were residential related, equipment related, access related, um, if they were in the shelter, if they were in the crisis center. So all those different things, I was able to um, send a report to each program and uh, a report of findings. So after the findings, we were then able to establish an in-house training where I would personally go out to each of those five programs and provide an intensive two-hour training. Um, and the, the training was interactive. Um, I would present a scenario where you had a deaf or hard of hearing survivor, and so they were able to work through that. And then there were some um, informational uh, aspects that were provided as well and differences between deaf people, hard of hearing people, and the different needs that they had. So they were able to take all those things into consideration. Another thing that we were able to provide um, was for program improvement, like uh, we could install a video phone 
which is um, technology. It's a telephone. So I, I can't talk on a regular handset or, or a, a smartphone. I can't just talk over the phone if I'm a deaf survivor, right? It's not accessible to me. So instead, um, being able to provide a, it's really a TV monitor. It's basically, it works, functions like a webcam where you're able to access um, telephone calls, whether you're calling, your, you can access an interpreter if you're trying to make a telephone call, if you're trying to get um, sign up for services, for you know, food stamps or whatever it is. Um, instead of depending on other people, it's very self-empowering um, and um, it's, it allows deaf and hard of hearing people who communicate with sign language to access services through the telephone. So we were able to install video phones in, um, which is a real positive success story. So now we have another poll question. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're ready for the next poll question to test your knowledge. Do you want me to do the poll, Sarah? I'm not hearing anything. I didn't know if you took that over. <laughs> I'm sorry, I accidentally uh, was muted. I um, apologize to everybody. We didn't realize that you couldn't see Holly when the poll was up. And so um, I'll go ahead and read the poll. Poll number five says, how does one describe a late deafened person? You have three options. Um, a person who experiences hearing loss starting from age 10 and up, a person who experienced hearing loss in adulthood, or an elderly person with hearing loss. And it looks like a little over, almost all of the people have responded. So Holly, I'm gonna close the um, poll and nobody will be able to see you, but they will be able to hear the interpreter. If you want to speak about this. Okay. or I can just turn it off. Um, we have 37% of people um, selected the first option, age 10 and up. 58% of people chose a person who experienced hearing loss in adulthood and few 5% 5, 5 selected elderly. Holly shuffles some papers. Okay, and yeah, I can see why some people would um, say 10 and over. Um, let's go back to, again, the term late deafened, meaning somebody who has become deaf later in life. Um, for, for example, I was born deaf. Um, I have, as a deaf person, I was deaf at birth. Late deafened means somebody in adulthood, um, which means 20 or older. So that's somebody who's considered late deafened. Okay. One, I think we have one more poll. Okay. Here. Yep. Yes, we do. Poll number seven. I will hook that up right this moment. Oh. What do you think? Okay. I hope this is correct. <laughs> How does... <coughs> that is not... Is that accurate? 
How does one describe a hard of hearing person? A person with some residual hearing and non-signers, a person who cannot hear any spoken words, or a person who lost some hearing after age five? So I'll go ahead and let everybody who is participating enter your answers out of those three options and we are almost at 50 percent thank you so much for everybody to everybody for participating all right we are almost um fully 100 percent participation i'm going to close this and share the results It looks like people said, 75% of the people on the line said that uh, it's a person with some residual hearing and non-signers. 15% selected the second option, a person cannot hear any spoken words. And 10% said a person who lost some hearing after age five, I believe that says. Okay, I will hide this so we can see Holly. Okay, so that last poll, um, we're looking at a person who, so if we're talking about somebody who can't hear anything, then that's more of a deaf person. A, a hard of hearing person would have some hearing. So, um, I mean, it makes sense from a certain perspective, but if you can't hear anything, then we would consider that person deaf. Uh, hearing loss, uh, uh, have, having a hearing loss after the age of five, um, isn't the actual case. Some people can be born hard of hearing. Um, so, I mean, it could be over five, but the correct answer then would be the first one. They have some residual hearing. Uh, they may use some amplification, some sort of hearing aid, but they're considered hard of hearing. And they're typically non-signers because they're not a, a linguistic minority. They're not part of the cultural linguistic minority group, um, not the capital D deaf. They, um, people who choose to use American Sign Language and, and uh, function as a cultural minority. Um, so usually more of the latent deaf or uh, somebody who just doesn't use American Sign Language. So I've got about five minutes left. So I wanna really kind of push through and touch briefly on um, trauma-informed interpreting. And if we can hold off to questions until the end, um, thank you, Sierra. An illustration of several colorful hands reaching towards the sky with hearts in their palms. So uh, let me talk about real quickly trauma-informed interpreting and how that can be uh, a preventative factor. So we worked with a group of American Sign Language interpreters um, and how they work with survivors, whether it's some, uh, sexual violence or domestic violence. Next slide. A picture of an audience at a concert. They're cheering, clapping, raising their hands. One of the things um, that and I'm talking specifically about ASL interpreters. So again, I want to clarify that um, how ASL interpreters really have a different role in the deaf community. Um, they will identify as interpreters, but sometimes they also have function as advocates. They are also friends of people in the community. Um, they may be educators, um, whether in a formal school or they may be educating in a more informal way. Um, but they're very they're very close knit to the deaf community. They're very, very close to the community that they serve. So there are other layers to consider when we talk about trauma-informed interpreting. Next. 
a portrait of three beautiful black women smiling with their faces snuggling together. So what we did was we also worked with um, our partner, um, Death Alive. And it's an organization here in Indiana. Um, um, it's a deaf nonprofit organization here in Indiana that serves, that serves uh, victims of domestic violence. So we work together to provide an interpreter training for um, trauma-informed interpreting. And it was a very intensive all-day training. It's usually full two days, but once in a while we can uh, kind of squeeze it down into one day. Um, but historically, it's been a two-day training. So those trainings, we, we train interpreters um, on the dynamics of power control and things like that. So that, um, and you're probably all familiar with uh, power the power control wheel. So we went in depth with that and what, why that matters when you're interpreting to understand you know, what may, you know, kind of the content of the experience of a survivor and make sure that their interpretation is survivor-centered and ethical as well. And so um, I can give an example. Next slide. An outline of two heads face each other. They each have a dozen geometric puzzle pieces inside the outline. On the left, the pieces are scattered. On the right, the pieces fit neatly together. Next slide. Yeah. Um, so we, we worked with a group of interpreters and looked at their role to make sure that communication was delivered clearly. And then also working with survivors, you're, you're working with people who are experiencing trauma. So the interpreter has to also understand the survivor's thought process may be jumbled. Their timeline may not be in the right order. So it can be confusing, it can be challenging for an interpreter to do their work. However, the interpreter then has to understand that somebody who's experiencing trauma isn't gonna be thinking clearly and linearly. So they may, I mean, their affect may not be clear, or they may cry, or they may laugh. I mean, they may have different ways that they um, express their their trauma. So it can impact the message that they're signing. Next slide. I use this example often in my trainings uh, with interpreters, and you know, we see a survivor. Um, she may well be describing you know what happened to her, like. Um, he made me give him a blowjob. Um, he climbed on top of me and uh, forced me to have sex. It is important you follow her lead, no matter what her word choice. So, so when we're talking to interpreters, making sure that they're signing what they're saying, they can't be squeamish because um, some of these things are going to be very direct. So misinterpreting something or... Uh, could, could create more trauma for, for the victim. So the, this is an actual true situation that happened. And so when we look at trauma-informed um, interpreting, we also look at the term rape, where a person may be using that, that term and the signing may be very graphic at the same time interpreter has to make sure that they're interpreting conceptually accurately. So we train these interpreters and help them 
become, you know, to prevent more trauma from happening in their interpretation. Next slide. A Venn diagram of five circles overlapping in the center. The blue circle is sexuality. Green is racial identity. Purple is gender. Red is nationality. Yellow disability. We also instructed the interpreters when they see a person, make sure you look at the person holistically, their intersectionality. They may be a person of color. They could be somebody who is LGBTQ. Um, there may be additional disability. Um, the interpreter has their own intersectionality as well. So how those things work together, be mindful of, of um, biases that you may have. Um, the interpreter may have their own trauma from a previous experience themselves. So, you know, making sure that everybody um, is well trained in these aspects. Next slide. Six colorful steps rise from left to right. The first blue step is trauma-informed. Purple is ethical imperative. Indigo is shared power. Green is professional needs. Light blue is healing opportunity. And yellow is prevention. So in, in summary, with the interpreters, we make sure that their, response of, uh, their responsiveness doesn't increase any risk factors or increase the amount of trauma, make sure that the, the survivor feels safe and the interpretation is, is thoughtful and is also considerate of the person that they're dealing with. Um, and it's appropriate for whether they're being, you know, talking to um, law enforcement or courts, uh, making sure that the interpreters certified, qualified, um, which is another all day training that could be by itself. Um, another factor to consider is deaf person's preference. They may not want a male interpreter or they may prefer an interpreter who uh, signs a, a certain communication style. So there are a lot of other things to consider. Um, Trauma-informed interpreting um, also makes sure that the interpreter is following their code of professional conduct and they're being confidential and ethical, um, making sure, because the interpreter holds a lot of power and if information is missing or left out, that can, that can affect things greatly. Um, the interpreter may feel like they're not the right person for the job and they may need to step out of that situation. So there are a lot of different factors um, that can help the healing opportunity for a survivor who is deaf or hard of hearing. And it does help prevent more harm. So that is, that wraps up my presentation. Thank you all for participating. A large green speech bubble says thank you. It is surrounded by other speech bubbles with the same sentiment in other languages. Merci, grazie, spasiba, arigato, etc. And I'll turn it back over. Thank you so much, Holly. Sky reappears. Thank you. Um, okay, we well, just have a couple of more minutes. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to type those into the chat box. A simple illustration of the words thank you above a hand-drawn nose, mouth, and chin with the right hand making the ASL sign for thank you. But wait, there's more. Um, and yes, so <laughs> Sierra, <laughs> I don't know if you made or found this slide, but uh, it says, if you want to learn more about the intersections of disability justice and sexual violence prevention, 
Adventure awaits. The words hover over a simple drawing of a sea beneath twin mountains. We have a choose your own adventure of areas and ways that you can continue to learn. Um, so one is just that we wanted to again highlight that we are part of a much larger task force that are striving to support statewide efforts to prevent violence and enhance independence and wellness among people with disabilities in Indiana. Indiana Disability Justice and Violence Prevention Resource Hub by the Indiana Abuse Prevention Disability Task Force, APDTF. The logo is a purple circle with the bright yellow text, the hub. Um, again, you can go to our Patreon to follow us for free and get lots of really cool free resources and information. Narrator's note, the Patreon has been retired. Please visit us at indisabilityjustice.org. Link available in video notes. Uh, go ahead, thank you. And uh, we do already have the last five webinars um, recorded and captioned on our YouTube channel. Um, there are also a lot of really cool webinars available on the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault um, website, then there's a link on the slide. And in the handouts section, you can just download those um, links, so you can go directly there. Links to the APDTF YouTube channel and Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault webinar series are both available in video notes. Yes, thank you. Um, and then this, uh, this is just a reminder that, so this is webinar number six, and we have four more that are happening all in December and January. So the next webinar I am very excited to say is going to be a panel webinar similar to webinar three. Um, the next webinar on December 10th, which is next Tuesday from 1 to 2.30, is going to be a panel of folks who are neurodivergent and or have mental illness. And they're going to talk with us about their experiences and expertise in preventing sexual violence against people who are neurodivergent and or have mental illness. Um, and then webinar eight, the following week on that Tuesday, December 17th, myself, Sierra and Jody Powers are going to talk with y'all about uh, how to do accessible organizing. Um, and then the last two webinars will be in January. So one will be a social justice framework for service providers to implement sexual violence prevention with people with disabilities. And the last webinar, we're still working on some of the logistics, but we believe it will be January 10th. And we are looking at having a, basically a safer sex and accessible sex webinar with two sex educators. So those will all be super exciting and we hope that you can also join us for those. Um, and then this last slide includes all of our contact information if you have any questions or wanna talk with us more about any of this content or other things related to disability justice and violence prevention. Contact us, email and phone, the hosts. Sierra Olivia Thomas Williams from ICADV. Williams at icadvinc.org. Sky Cantler from MESA, cantler at purdue.edu. Abuse Prevention Disability Task Force, indisabilityjustice at gmail.com. The Hub, indisabilityjustice.org. Narrator's Note, the Hub URL has been changed from what was on screen to reflect the current updated site. Our guest, Holly Elkins, Deaf and Hard of Hearing Outreach Coordinator, Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, 1915 West 18th Street, Suite B, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202-317-917-3685. Direct line, 
317-644-6206. Hlkins at icadvinc.org. Did and... I miss No, you didn't. And the obligatory funding disclaimer. <laughs> Thank you yes. for the uh, to ISDH and the CDC for um, for awarding us with rape prevention and education dollars so that we can bring this series to you. And to pay the people with disabilities who are doing this work. Yes, and you can tune in to webinar number eight to hear more about that. I am just so, so delighted that, to have hung out with you two for the last hour and a half, Holly and Sky. And thank you to the translator and our live captioner. You are magical, all of you. And I just want to launch you into one of the best weekends. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you all. Have a good weekend. We will provide you with everything. Sorry for talking over you, Holly. Oh, no, I was just, um, no, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure working with you guys. And um, yeah, thank you. Okay. Good luck. With I'm going to go ahead. Excuse me. Bad form. My apologies. I'm going to go ahead and end the webinar. Thank you, everybody. Funding for this webinar was made possible in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Indiana State Department of Health. The views expressed in written materials or publications do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does the mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.